Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. Coming up, the ethics of artificial intelligence. I think that my dark nightmare is around not actually taking the opportunity of being able to do something about this now. Also, the civil engineering challenges in building New York's Water Tunnel 3, the largest construction project in the city's history. This is one of the three main valve chambers. Our voices are echoing around. It's like a, a grand underground cathedral, isn't it? I was blasted out of solid rock. And why space rockets are back in fashion. Elon Musk being Elon Musk, he wants to have a bit more fun than that. So he's decided that the Falcon Heavy's first payload is going to be his own Tesla Roadster electric sports car. But first... Artificial intelligence promises to unleash a spurt of productivity. Its impact can already be seen in homes, businesses, and the political process. In robots, it'll soon be driving cars, stocking warehouses, and caring for the elderly, perhaps. It holds the promise of solving some of the most pressing issues facing society, but it also presents ethical challenges like transparency and accountability. I'm joined in our studio by Kay Firth Butterfield. Kay is the head for artificial intelligence and machine learning at the World Economic Forum, whose annual meeting at Davos takes place this month. And she's also an associate fellow at the Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. Hello, Kay. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. So, Kay, first, what are the ethical issues related to artificial intelligence? And are they any different than the questions that we have with other technologies? Yes, they are different. And really because AI is sort of the engine of the fourth industrial revolution. So if I look at my fellows who are working on other aspects of the fourth industrial revolution at the World Economic Forum, one's talking about autonomous vehicles, precision medicine, IoT devices. But um, AI is really the underpinning of all those different emerging technologies that other people are looking at. And so, yes, I think it is different. And therefore, I think it's really important to get the ethical aspects of it right. What are these ethical issues related to AI? Well, I guess the the ones that we all speak about are transparency of the algorithms, bias um, in the algorithms in the way that they're created or in the historical data sets and how one deals with those. The privacy issues that are associated with being able to use AI on big data sets, and obviously there are considerations about ownership and reward that people are talking about, accountability of the algorithms, and the way that we're seeing things, I think you wrote an article recently about AI and surveillance and so the ways in which artificial intelligence might be used. And so that's not necessarily the ethics of AI, but it is uh, thinking about 
the ethical ways of using AI. And obviously, one can go on to lethal autonomous weapons and the debates around that as well. Of all the risks that exist, what is your dark nightmare? I think that my dark nightmare is around not actually taking the opportunity of grasping, being able to do something about this now and addressing the issues now. I think we have a a time frame now where we can do something. And if we don't do something, then we will have sort of free-for-all AI. Great. And so what is that one thing that you can do? Say you've got, you've got a list of concerns, mm-hmm. but you, don't, you can't get them all. You mm-hmm. can have one reform and you win it and you get it. It's nailed. What is it? It's probably what I call generation AI. So it's probably around the fact that the moment we are having educational AI toys coming onto the market... And we really need to think about how we provide education and by whom we provide education and how our children interact with those toys and robots. Because I think, and and doing work with some academics in this space, we really need to see that that actually might change what it means to be human in terms of creative play and in terms of how we socialize, if our invisible friend is no longer an invisible friend, but a talking device, an interactive device. And so the, the great win, the great sort of reform or policy reform that you would want that would alleviate perhaps the, the darkness of the nightmare, what is it? It would be around thinking about the privacy issues for for the children who owns the data, and not everybody has the GDPR um, around the world, because obviously I think on a global perspective. Um, so it would be around the privacy issues, who would own the data, the ability to surveil that data, and then thinking about whether there are any regulations that need to be put in place for delivery of education. I think that we are going to need to make sure that people know about AI because it's really important for citizen engagement, for them to have a good understanding of of how AI works so that they can actually engage with some of these issues. I think that it is really important as well that we learn humanities because we really need to the world, the coming world, to have some understanding of what it is that makes us human. It's nice to think of that. But I do recall that in the Middle Ages, there were the classic uh, items of, a, of an education that all learned people needed to know. It included astronomy. Mm-hmm. It included music. It included rhetoric. Sort of things that today at secondary school and universities, they don't typically teach. Well, that's very true. And and critical thinking seems to me to be a really important thing that we have forgotten to, or we you're only getting at perhaps university level. And it's certainly something that we need to, we need to think about, especially when we have machines that can feed us information that we need to consider critically. That's really interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the Economist Science and Technology podcast, Babbage. If you like the show, remember you can rate it on your favorite podcast app. 
Now, also, if you appreciate our journalism, we would appreciate it if you would take out a subscription. You can do so at subscribe.economist.com. You, like a million and a half other people in the world, will be glad that you did. Next up, New York City Water Tunnel Number 3. It is the largest capital and civil engineering project in the city's history. And it's being built to provide New York City with a third connection to its upstate water supply. The tunnel will be more than 60 miles long. It is 500 feet below street level, and it will eventually cost over $6 billion. Amazingly, the construction began in 1970, when Richard Nixon was in the White House, and it is expected to be completed in 2020 when, well, we can only guess. The Economist's head of radio, Anne McElvoy, took a tour of the construction site with former Deputy Mayor Ken Lipper and Andrew Kaczynski, the chief of shaft maintenance. What you hear is the ventilation system. It's not clear. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear. <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure whether it's going to be hot or cold down there, Ken. What's it going to be like? It'll be cold. It'll be comfortable. comfortable. I did dress Same in several years. In several legs, because I'm a coward. But I guess I could make an hour because it's far down and it's sometimes hot. It's probably about a two to three minute trip. Of the Don't worry, it won't bounce. And these are one of our better elevators. The <laughs> smaller shaft is real regular. Well, I'm very pleased to be in your VIP elevator. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just take a quick peek over here. We can't go in here. This is the actual that goes down into the tunnel. And that's where they lower the crane from up top. You notice the crane at the surface? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one of the three main valve chambers. You know, our voices are echoing around. It's like a, a grand underground cathedral, isn't it? Yes, and it, it has a purpose. The purpose is to move the water and to connect up ultimately with the distribution system in the city. So this ultimately is what gets the water from here to the buildings out in the street and homes and offices. So this is where it will all hook up. For, for those of us without engineering qualifications, you're going to have to tell me how it all works. Is that, is that okay? Okay, so we, we have four pipes down here. We call them laterals. And they're 96 inch in diameter, which is eight feet in diameter. You see all the beams and all the layer upon layer of, of work that has to go in here. This is man-made. This is the, it's magnificent, it man-made It is magnificently buildings. man-made. It must have been taken ages to dig out. Huh? Yeah, well, this, just, this cathedral that you said yeah. itself, it was blasted out of solid rock. Above here is going to be what we call a distribution chamber. And that's what actually does connect to the distribution system. In this 48-inch, this is a 48-inch pipe, we call this a riser pipe. This, this is under pressure. This is the side that's in service. This is actually taking water right now from city tunnel number three, stage one, that's in service and taking it up to, you know, to the surface and connects to the distribution system. There you go, that's the 150 feet. And the pressure is driving it up and into the water pipes, the water mains in the streets. And what's the mechanism for pumping it? So that's, the, that's the beauty of the New York City system, it's all gravity. 
So the, the reservoirs that are in upstate New York are at a higher elevation here. So as it, as it goes into the tunnel, it, it gets forced back up to here with no problem at all. And is, are there any bits that gravity doesn't take care of? There are, I'd say about 10% of the city where we do, have, we do have to pump. Mostly parts of Staten Island, northern Manhattan, and maybe eastern Queens. Our engineering forefathers were brilliant you know, the way they designed it. Because it really... That's how the Roman aqueduct system was originally built was a gravity system, and that's what made it such a wonder of the world. Planking our way down on the metal pipes. ladder. Up, we're going down. So this is the bottom floor of the main valve chamber. And these are the 96-inch pipes that I mentioned, so 8-foot diameter that would, that would flow the water. Uh, these are flow meters. See where the, where the tubes, where the pipe narrows down? And that has to do with, with just some engineering, that there's a different pressure in the middle of the pipe than there is it where the pipe starts. And we measure the difference in pressure and then calculate the flow. The first water tunnel was uh, started at the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, these, and the second, uh, numbers of years later, these tunnels have stayed in service continuously and have not been able to be renovated because you couldn't turn off the supply or you'd uh, literally have queens go out of business. Uh, and uh, so this tunnel will be the first time that the city would be allowed to turn off one of the other tunnels while still supplying adequate water to the population and repair and rebuild the other tunnels. So we've just emerged back into the daylight, now fading daylight, late afternoon, looking back over at, at Manhattan. It really does look so beautiful from over here. Any parting thoughts on it, Ken? It's for me, I mean, I will just think a lot more when I drink my water in New York. It's an unfashionable thought, but great civilizations don't just live for now, but they live for posterity and they build for posterity. That means sacrificing some things now so that tomorrow will be better for succeeding generations. Thank you very much, Kenneth, for showing us this one of New York's finest secrets, I think. Thank you. My thanks to Anne McElvoy for doing deep, deep research for that report. If you have any thoughts on artificial intelligence or New York's biggest civil engineering project, please do put them in an email and send them to radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And regular Babbage listeners will remember that over the summer, we ran a special book promotion, and the response was overwhelming. We appreciate that. So what we'd like to do now is weekly on the show, give away a book related to science and technology or anything else that's on my bookshelf that I feel like other readers should appreciate and will appreciate. It's completely subjective. This week's book is The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age, by David Schwartz, and is published by Basic Books, and was published just recently. The only qualification to get the book is that you contact us with something that you like about the show and something that we can do to change it, to improve it. We'd also appreciate it that when you get the book, that you thank us on social media. But all you really need to do is read the book. Stage one, tanks present before. Finally, T-minus 15 seconds, standby for terminal count. Big rockets are back in fashion. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 
five, four, three, two, one. Ignition, lift off. Sitting on the launch pad next at Cape Canaveral in Florida is the Falcon Heavy, the latest rocket from SpaceX, a private spaceflight firm. Its engineers have spent the past few weeks testing their machine, and at some point in the next few weeks, they will take the final step and actually try to launch it into orbit. For the full story behind the building of the biggest rocket in the world, I'm joined by the economist science correspondent, Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, the rocket is big, but it's actually not that big. Yeah, it depends how you look at it. I mean, like you said, it's the biggest rocket in the world at the moment. Assuming it does actually fly, it'll have more than twice the payload capacity of the, the sort of next biggest rocket, i.e. in terms of you know, how much stuff it can, it can get into orbit. If you look historically, though, the biggest rocket we've ever built was the Saturn V, which was the, the thing that took all the Apollo astronauts to the moon back in the, the 60s and the 70s. And that's sort of really, really enormous. It could, it could take about 140 tonnes into low Earth orbit. And even the Falcon Heavy, which is the biggest rocket in the world at the moment, can only manage about half that, about 64 tonnes is its, its maximum. So why are we building smaller rockets? Well, partly because there hasn't really been a demand for big ones. I mean, the, the, the Saturn V was built specifically to get people to the moon. And to do that, you just need a big machine. You know, the, the moon is, is a fair way away. You've got to take enough stuff there that you've got a spaceship to land on the moon with and enough fuel to come back. You know, you need a lot of payload. And for that, you need a big rocket. But the last people to leave Earth orbit, you know, left in 1972, the last um, set of Apollo astronauts, no one's done it since. And since then, space has been about, you know, we've built the International Space Station, we've launched communication satellites and spy satellites and Earth imaging satellites and science projects like the Hubble Space Telescope, all that kind of stuff. But none of those have ever needed anything on the scale of the Saturn V. So why is SpaceX creating the Falcon Heavy instead of the Falcon Light? Well, they already have an existing sort of Falcon lighter, if you like. It's called the Falcon 9. But Elon Musk, who is SpaceX's founder, he, he has two goals. One goal is to drastically cut the cost of getting things into orbit. And that's in service of the second goal, which is sending human beings to Mars. Now, if you need a big rocket to send humans to the moon, you're going to need a really big one to send them to Mars. So SpaceX's plans have always been to, to sort of build bigger and bigger rockets and try and drive the cost down and down to meet that goal. And the Falcon Heavy is the next sort of step in, in that plan. So what are they going to do with the Falcon Heavy? Well, so SpaceX at the moment has, has a pretty big order book. So it flies satellites for commercial companies. It flies satellites for America's Air Force. It takes cargo to the International Space Station. The Falcon Heavy already has a few customers lined up. So uh, some of those, again, are satellite firms who want to take, you know, big satellites or satellites into high orbits or lots of satellites at once or that, that kind of thing. Maybe the most eye-catching one is a plan to send a couple of tourists, rather brave tourists, on a jaunt round the moon, uh, which was supposed to happen this year, it might now happen next year. Uh, and this is the kind of rocket you need you need to do this. But what's interesting is if you look, if you compare the Falcon Heavy to, you know, existing big rockets, and this is a bit of an inexact science because, you know, the exact price of these things is not not sort of necessarily in, in the public domain. But the Falcon Heavy compared to the Delta IV Heavy, which is the sort of the biggest existing rocket at the moment, it can take more than twice as much into orbit. And the price should be about a quarter of what the Delta costs. So when you look in terms of, you know, dollars per kilogram into orbit, this thing costs eight times less than, than, than the nearest competitor. And you've kind of got a, a chicken and egg problem here. And people say, well, you know, why do we need such a colossal rocket? 
On the other hand, if we had a colossal rocket, we might be able to find some uses for it, and particularly if that colossal rocket was cheap, which, assuming it doesn't turn into a fireball on the pad, the Falcon Heavy will be. So just to be clear, the Falcon Heavy will not have space tourists in them. This first one won't. So when you launch you know, the first of any rocket, you put a dummy payload in. And normally that's just a big block of concrete or whatever. Elon Musk being Elon Musk, he wants to have a bit more fun than that. He also, of course, is the founder of Tesla Motors. So he's decided that the Falcon Heavy's first payload is going to be his own Tesla Roadster electric sports car, which is sitting in the fairing right now at Cape Canaveral. And the mission plan is to blast it into orbit around the sun. Hold on a second. Talk about bearing the lead. You mean to tell me that in the Falcon Heavy that's launching in a couple of weeks, the payload is going to be the Roadster, the Tesla of Elon Musk that's going to go to the sun? A cherry red Tesla Roadster that, if it doesn't blow up on the pad, is going to spend the next few billion years in orbit around the sun, yeah. Well, I think it can be a solar-powered car then. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And you can read Tim's stellar piece in this week's issue of The Economist. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.